Well, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, we are continuing on looking at these threefold offices, and we've been spending a um, perhaps inordinate amount of time, uh, but I think useful time, looking at the role of Jesus and his fulfillment of Moses' prophecy that there would be a prophet who would come that would be like Moses himself. And so we're seeing how Christ himself is the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy. And last week, we spent some time looking at and considering how Christ was a prophet with words of wonder, and particularly the first thing we saw, and we spent an extended amount of time seeing how Christ's words were inspired by the Holy Spirit, just as any of the prophet's words were. And we looked at several different passages. Peter tells us that no prophecy comes by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And then we saw how Jesus' own ministry, his public proclamation of the gospel, did not begin until after his baptism by John the Baptist. And this was the point in which the Spirit comes and rests upon Christ as he goes about his ministry. And we saw a number of different passages that speak to the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy, or that he was fulfilling this role through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in particular, Luke chapter 4, we saw how he takes, and there in his hometown, he takes the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up, and, and reads where Isaiah speaks of how the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we talked about how Christ then takes the scroll and rolls it up, puts it back in its place, and he goes and sits down. And of course, the scripture says, all the eyes of everyone in the synagogue is upon him. I mean, talk about, you know, bringing the tension there and and that, that dramatic pause And Jesus, as he's sitting among the people in the synagogue, he makes this statement that that particular prophecy was fulfilled that day in their presence. Pointing to Christ's work as prophet being fulfilled as he does this through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we we spent a, a good amount of time last week exploring that fact that Jesus Christ's words were inspired by the Holy Spirit just as the prophets of old. But secondly, Christ being this prophet with words of wonder, we also see that the Scriptures make it abundantly clear to us that Christ's words were perceived as tangibly different than the teaching of the Jewish leaders. In many places in the Gospels, we hear a response from those who are hearing Christ's words, and they make a statement. They said, he taught them as one having authority, and then they they contrast that as saying, not like or not as the scribes and the Pharisees. And so this is all throughout the Gospel. We see it in Matthew chapter 7, 28 through 29. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. For he he was teaching them as one who had authority, not 
as their scribes. We see it in Mark chapter 1, verse 22 and verse 27. They were astonished at his teaching. Again, he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Mark goes on in verse 27. They were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority? And in particular, it's referring to how Christ had the authority to cast out demons. He says he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So very early on in Christ's ministry, as he goes about proclaiming the gospel, there was something that was noticeably different, something tangible that that people recognized just sitting in his presence. But we also see this described for us in the passage that we were looking at last week, particularly in Luke chapter 4. So look with me in Luke chapter 4. Now we read through verse 21 last week how Christ rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, sat down, everyone's eyes are fixed on him, and Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, you have to understand that was a bit of an audacious thing to say, all right, particularly among the people whom Christ had grown up with, all right? This is his own hometown. These are people who knew him as the son of a carpenter. And he comes into their synagogue after receiving the Holy Spirit at the, at the, when he's baptized by John the Baptist. He comes into their synagogue and he makes this statement. So how do people react to such an audacious claim by Christ? How do they respond to it? And we see verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled, at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, it's interesting here because in just a moment, we're going to see how these crowds respond when Christ presses deeper into their own lives. But there is something tangibly evident when Christ gets up and, and speaks the written word and then proclaims that it's fulfilled in him that even crowds that are about to reject him recognize something different about him. So they say this. They speak well of him. They marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. And then they say, is this not, or not, is not this Joseph's son? They're shocked. I mean, carpenters were not the type of people who could handle the scriptures in such, in such a way. It was not something, they, they were expecting this type of insight to come from somebody who had spent years studying the, <clears throat> the Talmud, studying the, the different writings of the rabbis over years, that, that's what they would expect. It's not some carpenter, not somebody who was a blue-collar worker. And so they say, "Is this? how can this be Joseph's son? And so Jesus says to them, doubtless, You will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. So his his power, the work that he's doing is beginning to spread. And here at Nazareth, they're saying, we know you can do some amazing things, Jesus. And so Jesus says, truly, I say to you, 
No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. That there is a tendency for people to not accept someone that they've known growing up from a little kid on up. So Jesus brings them to this point, and he says, look, are are you just going to jump on this bandwagon because I'm the most famous person of Nazareth? Like, What are you going to do here? And he, now he takes, and as the prophet does what the prophet is sent to do. Now remember, let's go back and remember for a second, when we went through this, what was the function of the prophets in the Old Testament? What was their primary role? They served as divine what? Prosecutors. They were, they were district attorneys for Yahweh. And they called out the sins of God's people. And so their primary responsibility was to point to people's sins and to call them to repentance. And for that, what did they get? Did they get accolades and accepted? No. For that, they were murdered. For that, they were tortured. For that, they were persecuted. So here's Jesus. Great statement. This prophecy is fulfilled today in your presence. So what, what, are, what, is, what, are the, what are the Nazarenes going to do with this? Jesus goes on. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them. He wasn't sent to a widow of Israel, he was sent to only one in Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And he goes on, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed but who? Naaman the Syrian. Now, <clears throat> Jesus is he's coming right after the Jewish people in Nazareth on this day. Because he comes to them and he says, there's famine in the land. Where does God send his grace? To the widow of Zarephath. Zarephath. During Elisha's reign, when Elisha was the prophet, there were lepers in Israel. Which leper was healed? Not an Israelite. Naaman. And, and Naaman, you know, he, he wasn't like just some regular Syrian. He was the commander of, of the armies of the king of Syria. All right, this guy was a butcher. If you look at how the Syrians waged war, it was horrendous. And instead of God providing grace and compassion and love to Israel in these moments, because what has Israel done? Had they turned back to the Lord? No, they persisted in rebellion. And so God gives his grace to a widow at Zarephath, and to a heathen, wicked general. Now, what's he saying? What, what, what significance does this have for those in Nazareth? He's calling them out and saying, you know what? You are just like those people. Here is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. This is fulfilled in your presence today. 
So it's not something to jump on a bandwagon and seek for political revolution because that's what they were looking for in the Messiah. They wanted someone who was going to kick the Romans out and make them a rich nation again. And Jesus comes and says, hold up a second. You guys are just like the Israelites during Elijah's time and Elisha's time. So he makes this statement. Speaking of how God's grace was being withheld from his own people because of their rebellion. And that was done to call those people to do what? Repent and to turn to Yahweh. And so now he's giving that opportunity to the Nazarenes at the synagogue. He's the prophet fulfilling the role that Isaiah had spoken of. He's the prophet fulfilling the role that Moses had spoken of. What will you do with his words? Will you attach yourself to him because he's got miraculous power? Will you attach yourself to him because he brings political revolution? Or will you come humbly before his feet and bow to him as your Lord? What do you think the Jews in Nazareth do? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with what? Wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town. Had Israel changed? They persecuted Elijah. They persecuted Elisha. They persecuted the prophets before Christ. Christ comes as a prophet. It is obvious that he speaks with authority that nobody else speaks with. They even admitted to that. They marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. And that grace was actually evidenced in him calling them out for their hypocrisy, their religiosity, their self-righteousness. He was being gracious to point those problems out because only through repentance can they come into the kingdom. But they didn't want to hear that. They drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could not just drive him away from the city. What did they want to do to him? They wanted to kill him so that they could throw him down the cliff. But of course, it wasn't Christ's time yet. And so he passes through their midst. And there is some debate about how this worked out, but in any regards, there was a miraculous intervention here where Christ just sort of gone. He went down to Capernaum. He went to the city of of Galilee, and he was teaching there on the Sabbath. Wonder how much we are like these people of Nazareth. We know that Jesus has words of authority. It is tangibly evident. The world knows it. I mean, there is a reason why, even to this day, the most godless of politicians, what will they quote? The Bible. They'll quote 
the Sermon on the Mount. They'll quote Jesus' words. There is something tangibly different about what he says. But when God's word comes and disagrees with our own particular views, that's where the conflict comes into place. Whose words will we follow? Who will we listen to? Will we bow the knee submissively to the Word of God? Or will we, like the Nazarenes, wage war against the Holy One? Those are the only two options. Submission or conflict. Obedience or war. What will you do with Christ's words? How will you respond when you read them in your own personal devotional time? How will you respond when you hear the Word of God proclaimed from this pulpit or you hear another sermon preached online that calls you to change your way of thinking and your way of acting? What will you do? See, Christ's prophetic ministry is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It continues today. What will you do with the words of your Lord? So Christ's words are tangibly different, but we must submit to them. We must heed his words. But this reality, the true nature of Christ's words, is truly only revealed to his disciples. And we come to another passage in the Gospel of John. <coughs> Excuse me. Where another similar thing happens. So Jesus has been teaching crowds. In fact, He's not just been teaching crowds. John 6 comes on the heels of Jesus feeding how many people? 5,000 people with a huge smorgasbord that he had laid out, right? No. Five loaves, loaves, two fishes. All right? When we were away this weekend, we went to get dinner and I got this delicious pecan-crusted trout at this restaurant with my parents. And I'm, I'm really not a fish guy. Like, I don't really like a lot of, of fish. But, man, this was good. All right? And it was, it was, I took a picture of it because I couldn't believe how big this filet of fish was. It was humongous. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to eat this. And then, 20 minutes later, it was all gone. Now, Lest you be concerned that while I was down south, I didn't get to eat any of the fruit of the pig. Oh, yes, I did. Country ham for breakfast the one day. Oh, amazing. But here's this, this fish, and I, and I ate it. And you know what? I was, I was surprised. I'm like, wow, this, this sort of filled me up. But, you know, 20 minutes later, I'm like, okay, where's the ice cream? All right? Two fish would barely feed Two men. What does Jesus do? He takes these loaves and these fishes and he feeds 5,000 
people with it. Now, I don't know about you, but with inflation, you know, supply chain issues, I would love to follow around a guy who can take five loaves and two fishes and make essentially unlimited food out of it, right? doesn't cost me a thing. And that's exactly what the crowds did in Jesus' time. In fact, the Scripture tell us that early on in John chapter 6, he had left them and gone in a boat and went across the way, and everyone wakes up the next morning, and of course they're hungry again, and they're like, well, where's this guy who makes this food? And so they all get in boats, and they, they go across the sea to find him. It was a good day for the fairies on the Sea of Galilee at that day. And so Jesus comes, and he confronts them, just like he confronted the, Nazar- the, the Nazarites in the city of Nazareth. So he comes and confronts these people who are following him. You're only following me to fill your stomachs. I am the bread of life. I come down from the Father. I provide words that are better than that which fills your stomachs. I fill your souls with my words. And then he calls them to say, you know what? You have to abandon dependence on any other words. In fact, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood as the bread of life or else you have no part of me and you have no part in the kingdom. So he says this. And the crowds say, this is a hard saying. And so Jesus says, you think that's hard? Wait until you see the Son of Man ascended to the right hand of the Father. He essentially says, I'm God. And that was too much for these Jewish crowds. And so we have John 6, 6, 6. Now, The scripture references, the verses were not in the original manuscripts. I don't want to make a big deal of this, but if there has ever been a verse that is the number of man, number 666 is the number of man, it's John 666. What happens? After he says this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They couldn't take the exclusive claim that Jesus laid at their feet. They wanted to follow their own cleverly devised ways. They wanted to live with themselves as Lord and King. And so, thousands of people, gone. So Jesus looks around. And there are How many left? Twelve. And he looks to the twelve. And he says to them, Do you want to go away as well? I think this is a question that every one of us needs to encounter in our lives, that we will encounter. Will we follow the world or will we go with Christ? Do you want to go away as well? And so Peter pipes up. Simon Peter answers him, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? He says, there's no one like you. There's no one else for us to follow. Why? Because Jesus has what? The what? The words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else can we go to find words like Christ's words? Nowhere. There is no idea, there is nothing conceived by the imagination of men that comes anywhere near the power, the authority, the life-giving properties of Christ's Word. He is the only one who possesses the words of life. So what does it mean then to be like Peter, to look to Christ? Well, we're not following Him for signs and wonders. We don't come to Jesus to just provide our best life now, to provide physical provision. Now, can He do that? And does He do that? Absolutely. We're called to bring our burdens and our cares before Him, but that's not why we have allegiance to Him. Our allegiance does not rise and fall based on what Jesus provides for us in a physical sense. We don't Follow Him because He provides food. We follow Him because He provides words of spiritual provision. He is the one that satisfies our soul. This is what fundamentally separates a disciple from a pretender. A disciple from someone who's just going along to get along. A hunger for the Word of God. A satisfaction that only God's Word can provide. Now here's the question. Do you have this hunger? Or are you like the crowds? When Christ makes fantastic claims about who He is... Do you, like Peter, say, these are the words of life. I've come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. Is that where your trust is residing? Have you turned aside from the fanciful words of the world and recognized that they are empty, that they're junk food? in comparison to the sustenance that God's Word provides. Now, this indication of true spiritual life is only something you can answer for yourself. In fact, later on in this passage, Jesus says, you know, you've spoken well. I'm glad that you're here with me, but don't you know that even now, one of you is a devil? And he's referring to Judas Iscariot, the one who held the money bags. See, it's, it's possible to fake it 
in the church to come and to sit on Sunday mornings. Or if you're really serious about it, to come and sit on Sunday evenings. Or if you're really serious about it, to come on Wednesdays. Or to read God's Word and yet not have a hunger for the Christ of God's Word. It's possible to do that. So this is truly a moment between the Holy Spirit and yourself. Do you hunger for the Word of God? Or are you like the crowds that go away because Christ's demands are too much? There's a warning here that even among those who seem outwardly to be true disciples, the devil can still lurk. (coughs) Are you hungry for the Word of God? So Christ fulfilled this work of prophet by clearly showing that He was filled by the Holy Spirit like the prophets of old, and that He tangibly in His teaching provided something that the world, even those who rejected Him, could recognize. There's something different about His words. But then, every prophet that had been sent by the Lord failed in this regard. They were those who proclaimed the Word of God, but every prophet, including Moses, at one point or another failed to submit to the Word of God. Moses was brash in what he did, and instead of, and I always get this wrong, so if I get this wrong, I'm sorry, instead of speaking to the rock, he, he, he struck it. Is that right? I think that's right. And what happened? He wasn't able to enter the, the, the Holy Land. And this is Moses. We can look at Jeremiah, who constantly had doubts and, and hid himself. We can look at Elijah. If you look at Elijah's life after Mount Carmel, an amazing, amazing work of God that demonstrated his power, Jezebel is like, well, we need to kill this guy. And so what does Elijah do? He starts shaking in his boots and runs to the caves. God's like, what are you doing? Every single prophet among men failed to fulfill and perfectly submit the Word of God. That's why we need a perfect prophet. Someone who not only proclaims God's Word and is faithful in that proclamation, but who also perfectly submits to God's Word. And that is Jesus Christ. Christ perfectly submitted to the Word of God. We see this, <coughs> excuse me, in Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 4, or I'll have it up on the screen, we're going to take a look at Christ's temptation by the devil. It's interesting how in this temptation we see direct attacks on the prophetic 
role of Christ. The devil attacks Christ regarding God's Word. And frankly, that's where the devil begins his attacks today with us. Will you submit to God's Word, or will the devil's temptations come and say, you know what, you don't need to worry about what God said, just follow this person's thought process, or follow, ultimately, your own way of thinking. And we see Christ coming in Matthew chapter 4, and perfectly submitting to the Word of God. Now, we could spend probably the rest of this year unpacking all the truths in Matthew chapter 4. It is a remarkable passage of Scripture. And again, I'll share with you some of the deep theological truth that seminary training gets you. Matthew chapter 4 comes before Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's, I think, significant in that Christ is going to preach the greatest sermon ever preached. And He's done that. Before He does that, He establishes His submission to what He's going to preach. Christ truly practiced what He preached. So what do we see? Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We're going to go ahead and read the whole passage, and I'll come back and make some observations. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he, the devil, said to him, to Christ, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Christ perfectly submitted to the word 
of God. As a prophet, he perfectly fulfilled this role. We see this, first of all, in his perfect submission to the Spirit. Christ perfectly submitted to the Spirit. Notice who it was that led Jesus into the wilderness. It was the Holy Spirit. So we see, again, a voluntary submission of the Son of God to the Spirit of God for the purpose of accomplishing the works of God. Christ is here providing for us an example. He is the example for the believer in all things. How did Jesus confront and have victory over this temptation? By depending upon and submitting to the Spirit. How do we have victory over temptations in our own lives? By submitting to the Spirit. By dependence on the Spirit. By not grieving the Spirit in our own rebellious ways. By not pushing back against what the Spirit has said, but letting the Spirit use the Word to transform us. So, Christ submits to the Spirit and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And then we have Matthew saying the obvious in verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, guess what Jesus was? Hungry. I mean, I haven't eaten since noon and I'm starving already, all right? So 40 days and 40 nights, you'd be really hungry. And so we see the devil coming to Christ at a moment when he is physically weak, probably apart from the cross, at his most physical weakness. And the devil comes and attacks the Word of God in the way he tempts him. Now, this has always been the method of attack by the devil. Go back to Genesis 3. Where did the devil attack, or where did the devil tempt Eve? By attacking God's Word. Has God said, oh, you surely won't die. God doesn't want you to eat the fruit of this tree because you're going to become like Him. You're going to know good and evil. And so, he says to Eve, did God actually say? Can you believe it? It doesn't make sense, does it, Eve? And boy, he does that today, doesn't he? Did, did God really say that, that we're to follow him above all things? Did, did, does God not recognize that love is love? We hear that today, right? So the devil has not changed his tactics. He just uses different strategies in getting to the same point where he calls us to turn away from God's word. How did he attack God's word? Well, three particular things that he does. He attacks the sufficiency of the word. He attacks by twisting the word. And then he finally attacks by seeking to circumvent God's word. We see him first attacking the sufficiency of God's word. He says, you're the son of God. Command these stones to be made bread. And Jesus answered, it's written... My sustenance, my living, is not 
by bread alone. But where did Jesus draw his sustenance for life? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus sought and found complete satisfaction in what God said. Without any desire to supplement God's word with anything else. God's word is enough. And Jesus showed that as he is starving for food, he recognizes that God's word sustains him. Then we see the devil twisting God's word. He comes and and says, you know what? There's a prophecy about you that the angels will be commanded by the Lord And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. So, let's see if it's true. Jump off the top of the temple here. Jump off and see if this is true. Now, notice he is speaking God's word truly. This prophecy had been given. But he was twisting it by calling Christ to do something that the Bible expressly forbids, which is testing God. And so Jesus says to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil spoke something true, and then he told Jesus to do it in a way that God had forbidden. This is a really subtle way of twisting the truth of God's Word. Making the Bible say what you want it to say, which is clearly not what God wanted it to say. Does this happen today? Oh, yes. The apostles warned us about false prophets that would come in and twist Things that God had given for their own desires. And so this means that we have to have a full-fledged understanding of all of God's Word. To recognize that when God says something in one place, it must line up with and harmonize with what God says in another place. Now sometimes that harmonization we're not going to understand. You know, God predetermined that the Jews would kill Christ and yet God holds them responsible for what God had predetermined. Do I understand that? God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Nope. But yet it's in God's word. And so the devil attacks sufficiency, attacked by twisting and then finally he attacks by circumventing. God had promised to give all that the devil offered to Christ to Christ. Right? That we know in Revelation chapter 5. Why is the Lamb worthy? Because He's made a people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. Alright? All the nations, all the kingdoms of the world will be given to Christ. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. 
So the devil's just saying, look, I'll give you that now. Just bow down and worship me. Just put me on the throne. I'll give you everything you're here to do. Just don't do it the way God has commanded you to do it. And so in each point, attacking the sufficiency of God's word, twisting God's word, and seeking to circumvent God's word, we have a true showdown between those who deny the prophetic office and those who seek to live by the words of God. And who wins? Christ. We actually see Christ affirming Scripture's truth. In each one of these responses, he responds, it is what? Written. He falls back upon and depends upon the Word of God. He affirms the sufficiency of Scripture. So perfect was Christ in his prophetic role that he perfectly found satisfaction in what God has revealed. He is the quintessential example of someone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is what? Good. He corrected the devil's twisting of God's word. You've got to understand you cannot use God's word to violate God's word. Perfect submission to God's word is shown here by how Christ does not do what is forbidden. He's not going to put the Father to the test. And then we see him submitting to the word rather than seeking a way around the word. The means by which the world would be given to Christ was defined by the word of God. He would be crushed and wounded and pierced for our transgressions. And yet he would become the great shepherd and overseer of our souls that way and that way alone. And so to seek another means of accomplishing the purpose for which Christ came would be a violation of that submission to God's word. So Christ affirmed the Scripture's truth. And boy, the devil attacks God's word in the same way today, doesn't he? The sufficiency of Scripture is under attack today. You, yeah, sure, you can have the Bible, but you need to update it to modern sensibilities. We, we have had so many advancements in science. We've had so many advances in psychology that, that we just need to sort of say, oh yeah, the Bible's fine, but it needs to be modified to meet the day and age. The Word is constantly twisted. We talked about how there are many false prophets who have gone into the world. 2 Peter 3.15, Account the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him 
as he does in, his, in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And then here's Peter. He says, you know what? Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. If you've ever read the book of Romans, there are things that are hard to understand. But what do people do with those things? The ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do what? The other scriptures. And so we need to seek submission to God's word rather than being fooled by the twisting of false teachers. And now, how do we do that? Well, go back. What was Christ depending on as he went into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells us that he gives the Comforter to guide us into all truth. So there is a dependence upon the Holy Spirit to have discernment in these things. But then finally, the full-blown act of this is that the Word is constantly discarded. Ultimately, the devil wants us to seek things apart from God's Word, to live apart from God's Word, to desire things apart from God's Word. He comes to Christ and says, look, just worship me and I'll give you everything you want. And he's saying the same thing to the world today. The devil wants us to place idols in the place that God rightly deserves and to worship them as a means of accomplishing our goals. You know, it's, it's funny <clears throat> how these three things, attacking the sufficiency of Scripture, twisting Scripture, and then discarding twister, Scripture, can be illustrated in the last uh, 125 years of American history. If you go back to <clears throat> the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know what the, the, the conversation was among scholars in the world? The Bible, it's got some holes in it. It's not sufficient. We need to update it with all these modern discoveries that we have. And so, yeah, we can follow it, but, but we, it's really not sufficient. We need something else to supplement it. And that continued for a long time. Then we come to the 1990s, the 2000s. And now it's not a matter of supplementing God's Word. We understand it's insufficient. That's what the world's saying. But also, you know what? Some of these areas that are problematic, we just need to reinterpret them. We, we, need, to, we need to change the way in which we have traditionally understood God's Word and make it more acceptable to modern sensibilities. I read an article yesterday by someone who essentially said that evangelical Christians who call sin, sin, are essentially the Pharisees of our modern day. And so, and the thing that they pointed to was the fact that Christians don't interpret the Bible correctly and that there needs to be another twisted interpretation that lines up more with the sensibilities of our modern age. And that takes us from the late 90s to 2010, and then I would say in 2010 and beyond, 
The world's like, you know what, we don't even need the word at all. Let's just discard it completely. Why even pretend to follow it? So how do we respond? Well, we must respond like our Savior responded. It is written. A full confidence on what God has provided in His Word. I know I'm out of time. Give me five minutes. Because there's one final thing that we see Christ showing Himself to be the prophet. And that is that Christ prophesied as Yahweh Himself. The final distinctive of Christ's prophetic ministry is the authority from which He spoke. The Old Testament prophets used a formula. They would say, thus says what? The Lord. Thus says Yahweh. And then they would provide the prophecy of Yahweh to His people. But is that what Jesus says? No. Jesus did not speak on behalf of God. Rather, He spoke as God. He would say, truly Truly, I say unto you. In fact, we find that that term, truly, truly, I say unto you, is found 88 times in the Gospels. In fact, this is likely why John refers to Jesus as the Word of God. Because he didn't come saying, the Lord says this. He came saying, I say this. This is also fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy about the one who John the Baptist would come before and would provide God's word. So, what can we gain from this? If Jesus came and spoke as Yahweh, then what does that mean Jesus is? He is God. In the way in which He provided prophecy it becomes an evidence of His deity. Now, there are many cults and people out there today that deny the deity of Christ. This is a very easy way to show them Jesus claimed to be God. Because He didn't say, God says. He said, I say. And only God can do that. Jesus' prophetic ministry is a demonstration of His deity. So, Christ fulfills the role of prophet. What does this mean for us now going forward? Is the prophetic role gone from God's people, Christ being the great example? What we're going to see now is that as those who are in Christ... We'll begin this next week. There is a role for us to continue as prophets, not in the same way of the Old Testament prophets, and not in the way that we're receiving new revelation from God, but rather we are called to proclaim and to point to Christ, the great prophet, as we submit to and proclaim His word to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. 
Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the one who fully and perfectly fulfills the role of prophet. Lord, we've been challenged in many different ways this evening. We've been challenged to see if we hunger for God's word, your word above everything else. We've been challenged to submit our lives to the authority of your word. Lord, we've been challenged to resist the devil by means of your word as Christ has. Lord, may we take these challenges today and implement them into our lives. Father, work in our midst by your spirit. May we take these things and meditate on them this evening and throughout this week. We love you. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.